Amen. Thank you, team. Just invite the ushers to go ahead and start taking the offering in. Good morning, everybody. I am excited to share the Word of God with you this morning. A little bit more excited than you sound to hear it, got to be honest. <laughs> Maybe we can change that. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing. Uh, just so you know, a few of the pastors and their spouses are away right now in sunny, exotic Whistler. Yes. Uh, the MB, our denomination, put on a pastors and spouse retreat every year. And, um, and so I think this is the first time since COVID that we've been able to actually have that. And it's just a time to bless and encourage a retreat. And as you can see by the fact that I am here, clearly I did something wrong this year. Uh, and Jordan as well. Um, so I'm st- we're still trying to figure that out. But uh, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to, uh, to share the word with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing it. I'm, I'm going to share from a passage that Old Testament scholars would say is perhaps the most beautiful story of humanity in the Old Testament. Arguably the most beautiful story and narrative in the Old Testament. And, uh, and it's just been a joy to meditate and think it through this week. And we're just going to walk through it. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to walk through the scripture. And then I'm going to look and do some cultural exegesis. Look at how our world thinks. And then we're going to look at how God thinks. And then we're going to apply it to ourselves. That's our track that we're going to go on. Before we do that, to frame everything, uh, as you know, any of you who have been studying the Bible, being around a church long enough, that Jesus often referred to himself as the son of David. Not the son of Abraham, not the son of Moses, uh, not the son of any other character in the Old Testament, but the son of David. And the reason is, is because David at his very best, when he was the king, is a beautiful picture of Jesus as king. That when you look at the characteristics and the personality and the actions of David, and you're going to see this so vividly today, you get in an idea, a, a look into the character, personality, and responses of Jesus as king. And we're going to see as we look at this beautiful story that, that we're at a high point of David's life. That all those, those things that God had instructed David to do, which was to drive out his enemies from the land, that he was now the undisputed king, that he was living at peace with himself and with the nation and with the world. This story is perfectly placed to show us about King Jesus. And I've had this story in mind to preach on uh, for a long time, and it seems like this weekend is a good time to do it because of, uh, of some of the other stories that we've looked at in David's life. And so what we have is David reflecting on his life. And you can find this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I'd encourage you to turn there on your phones or apps or in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and the scripture is going to appear, uh, well, I'm not going to read it through in its entirety, we're going to read a bit, talk a bit, read a bit, and then we're going to look at what our culture would say about what the message is in this story. Okay, is everyone ready? You ready to be filled and blessed this morning? That corner seemed to be. So I'm just going to, okay, it's all, not at all, looking forward to it. Maybe there's just a bit of a time difference. Just moves across, who knows. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness 
for Jonathan's sake. Okay, so this is what's happening. David, in all his peace, in all his security and just feeling good about life, he's reflecting. He's reflecting on his life. No doubt he would be thinking about what happened when he was first anointed as king and all the events that happened after that with David and Goliath and David the champion. He would have been thinking about when he was being chased around after Saul and Saul was seeking to kill him. He would have been thinking about the promises that he made to both Saul and to Jonathan, Saul's son, who we know was, uh, was very, very close to David. And you can see these two promises in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and 1 Samuel chapter 24. They were promises to provide for and protect the house of Saul forever. Let me say that again. He promised twice to Saul and Jonathan that he would protect and provide for the house of Saul forever. That's really important that we remember that because that's going to come up again in just a minute. All right, let's carry on. Now. There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. What a great name. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Now, Ziba was a, a servant of the house of Saul. So that means he had a lot of history with what went on in the house of Saul. He may even, and, and, and this is maybe a bit of a stretch, we don't know. He may even be a little bit suspicious of what's going on in David's house because he was so close to Saul. But we also know that Ziba was a very successful servant. In other words, he had his own servants. So this is a reputable man with influence. And David said, bring him to me. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, and he said it again. If you remember in this scripture, he said, is there anyone? Now he's saying, is there still not still someone of the house of Saul? that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in his feet. Okay, we're going to come back to that statement in just a second. Let's keep going. So remember these two promises that David had made to Saul and Jonathan to protect and provide for the house of Saul forever. Now there was a servant of the house. Okay, there's still a son. Oh, there we go. I've just, I've just worked through that. There we go. Let's keep going. Saul said, uh, sorry, David said, the king said to him, where is he? Where is this son of Jonathan? Where is this person? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machiah, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent out and brought him from the house of Machiah to the son of Emil at Lodabar. All right, let's just take a breath. I have struggled with this name all week. I have said to people, how do you say this? And they just say it so quickly. Well, it's Mephibosheth. Thank you. What happened most of the time when I tried to say it, it came out something like Mephibosheth. So here's the thing that I've noticed when you're in, this is just a bit of a side road, um, a bit of cultural exegesis, is that in Canada, we've noticed, Sarah and I and other Brits, that, that, um, that lots of people don't like their names being shortened. So I think about uh, the name Caitlin. In Britain, you wouldn't get a choice. You don't get to decide whether you're Caitlin. It's Kate, Katie, Kay, anything else that we decide. That's how it works. So you might go, actually, my name's Caitlin. <laughs> Good for you, Kate. <laughs> Here, very lovingly, very pastorally, you know, you're very firm. No, my name's Caitlin. 
All right, and as Brits, we lean into that going, well, we are aliens in a foreign land, even though we're citizens now. We're like, okay, Caitlin, that's great, wonderful. In fact, worse in Britain, you just get given a nickname that often has nothing to do with your name at all. I was meditating deeply on this this morning, and I remembered that I had a friend, a very, my best friend at school, and his nickname was Jock, J-O-C-K. His name was Jonathan Hughes. His middle name was Jonathan Roger Hughes. There is no reason at all that you would call him Jock. Apart from those of you who know this TV show called Dallas... How many of you remember that show? Let's, let's see those Gen Xers and Boomers, yes. There was a character in there called J.R., Jonathan Rogers Hughes, J.R. Hughes, who there was also a character called Jock. So therefore, now Jonathan Rogers Hughes was called Jock because J.R. was in Dallas, and, and I still call him to this day Jock. No reason. So I've been trying to think of different nicknames for Mishbeth. <laughs> one unhelpful one was Meth. And I said, yeah, but if I call him Meth, then if somebody joins the sermon halfway through, they're going to think I'm talking about David and Meth. That's not good. So the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to Mephibosheth, and he answered... Behold, I am your servant. Okay. All right, let's, let's dig into this a little bit, because this is such an important scripture. Ziba, we know, is in a previous position in Saul's house. Notice that first things that he did was that he told David he's lame. He immediately starts undermining his worthiness of being in the court of the king, because the courts of the kings at that time were filled with good-looking, worthy, able, high-ability people. So he's saying, look, yeah, there is this kid, young adult likely, but he's lame. There's no other reason really for him to share that piece of information apart from he started to build up reasons why David doesn't want him. The second thing we notice is that David says, where is he? And we're told he's in Lodabar. That literally means a barren, desolate, empty place of dissatisfaction. So not only is he pointing out he looks this certain way, he acts this certain way, but he's also from a certain place. You don't want anything to do with this place, David. It is a barren place. It is a place that nobody wants to be from. It literally means that the ground is starved of blessing. Then, we know, as we dig into the history of this young adult, is that his family situation is desperate. So he's got a bad location. He's not great looking. He's struggling uh, in, in terms of looking for it inside the court. We don't know what he actually looks like. But as far as the, the king's court at that time, he's not worthy to be in the presence of the king. He's from a bad place. He's also got a bit of a dodgy family background. And his history stinks. What is his history? Well, if you know, if you look previously, just a few chapters before, you'll find that actually this young man was a, uh, a descendant of Saul. Arguably, he was set to be a prince, perhaps a future king. But in the middle of a war, the nurse at that time scooped him up and ran to get him to safety. He was maybe five years old. 
She trips, he falls on the ground and immediately injures both of his feet. So he is now unable to walk for the rest of his life. He's lost everything. Now he's living in a place of desolation, terrified of the king. Because at that time, historically, when a king came to the throne, the first thing they did was search for all the descendants of any opposing king and did away with them. So this young man is living in a desolate place. He has a horrible background. He's unable to walk. He's unwanted. He was a prince, but now he's no longer a prince. And arguably, he has a death threat upon his life. He's lost everything. Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. Do not fear, I will show you kindness. This word kindness in the Hebrew is hesed. It literally means, kindness is not a great way of translating this word. It can be translated in a number of different ways. Lots of, we would have to use lots of different words to really get to the root of what this word means. I found this as a good, um, a good definition. Hesed is, quote, this is from the Bible scholar Daryl Bach, wrapping up in itself, this word wraps up in itself all the positive attributes of God. All the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty, in short, it acts of devotion and loving kindness that go, quote, look, look at this, go beyond the requirements of duty. See, we use the word grace really quickly. But this word grace, this unconditional love, is such a powerful word. This word kindness in this passage is used three times. Just by the simple law of repetition in Scripture, the fact that it's referenced three times in the same short Scripture shows us that special emphasis is placed upon this. This is an important word. That David wants to show kindness, grace, unconditional love to this young man who is completely unworthy, has done nothing to deserve it, is from a bad place at a bad time, He's not able to do anything really in life at that time. So much so, he's acutely aware of his position. I am your servant, he said. David's response is one of kindness. David's response is one of grace. David's response is one of Jesus. King Jesus. Remember, David at his best is a great picture of Jesus. When we look at our culture... Our culture increasingly, and it hasn't started recently, you could actually trace it back to the Enlightenment period. Our culture celebrates freedom. There's nothing wrong with that. Everything I'm going to say, there are elements of it that that result in, in things that are challenging. But I'm just going to tell you as it is. It is what it is. And, and those of us of a certain age uh, struggle to understand this. Because the way that we have been brought up, and I'm talking maybe from the mid-40s and older, the way that we've been brought up is not this way. But there was a massive shift, especially after World War II, uh, when we started, the, the boomers were growing up. But there's a shift from the boomers' children, there starts to be the shift from responsibility-minded life to rights-minded life. 
So no longer I have responsibility towards, it starts to shift, and now we're seeing it amping up more, that it's not about responsibility, it's about rights, my rights. And those of you who are older than 45 and above, well, you'll feel this, not just observe it, you'll feel it. Which is why sometimes we're in error when we get so angry at people because they are showing more uh, the thinking towards rights than they are responsibilities. One of the outworkings of this in our culture, especially those who are aged 40 and below, is that there's a high emphasis on transactional relationships. What do I mean by that? A transactional relationship is actually not necessarily a bad thing. Our economics are based on this. It's, if this was a definition, transactional relationships are based on upholding your end of the agreement. So uh, the other day, Sarah and I went on a date. We went to a restaurant. The, the service was great, but they came back with the wrong food, and we had to leave within 10 minutes. The, and so suddenly there's a breakdown of a transactional relationship. I give you money. You give me service. Nothing wrong with that. You don't get good service or you don't get a good product, then you go somewhere else. Then that's our capital market system is based on that. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is it started to creep into our personal relationships. As long as I get, I will. I have a right to receive and therefore then I will fill in the blank. I'll be in a relationship with you as long as you're giving me good service. Think of it relationally. If you stop giving me good service, I'll go somewhere else. Does that not ring true in our world today? Shift from responsibility to rights that started in the Enlightenment period, but then this shift from covenant, said covenant love, unconditional love, to "Mm, I'm not so sure you can give me what we signed up for, I'm moving on. And it's not just about marriage. It's about all sorts of different relationships. Something that many of you will understand, and some of you will be like, I need to Google this, is, is this. How many of you know what that means? Don't cheat, don't shout out. It's like being in grade six. Don't, no shouting out. Let me see your hands. Okay, uh, who's going to be willing to shout out what this stands for? Fear of missing out. Thank you. FOMO. Fear of missing out. So now we have this, okay, just stay with me. We have this transactional relationship. I'm going to give as long as you give me back. Driven by this idea that there's so much to experience out there, it's easy for me to drop and move on. So now there's a motivation because social media has made it in such a way that we get to see all the amazing things that everybody else has. And we go, oh, look at their life. Why aren't I living like that? Drop this life, move on. Transactional relationship. My relationships are not giving me what I want. That's fine. My culture tells me that I can drop it and move on. Transactional relationship. But it's not just in uh, in our relationships. We want this kind of freedom in everything. It's financial freedom, our sexual freedom. These are all things that our culture, millennial and Gen Z and the Gen Alpha before, are all motivated by. I just want to be free. Don't tell me what to do. I just want to be free. I want to be free to sleep with whomever I want to sleep with. I want to be free financially so I can go wherever I want. I want to be free to express myself in any way that I want to express myself. I want to be free from all authority, and I'm just going to drop anything that doesn't. 
uh, equate with that, and I'm going to move on because I'm in a transactional relationship with everything and everyone that is in my life. And it's not just my right, ready? It's my responsibility to live that way. Okay? So, what we get is this feeling of I can just always swipe right. How many of you know what I mean by that? I can just swipe right in my relationship. So those of you going, what is this guy talking about? There is an app that will remain nameless. It's a dating app that if you can just swipe through whether or not you want to reach out to somebody. And swiping right and swiping left, you can just swipe right and go, yeah, no, next, 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 next. David did not swipe right on this young man. He was not looking for a transactional relationship. He was not saying, yeah, no, right now, because there's something better, because I'm fearing of missing out. You see, this idea of swiping right is so ingrained in our society now that we swipe right with our neighbors, yet don't need to make any real effort with them, because there's always something better for me to do. We can swipe right with our friends, We can swipe right in our work, in our business relationships, because I'm just going to use you to get on transactional relationship. We can swipe right in our marriages, especially at certain times of life. I've been married 28 years this year, and I've noticed long enough now as a pastor that marriages tend to break down, especially in this city, especially in our Western city mindset when it comes to the kids graduating. Because it was the kids that held the marriage together, kids move on, marriage breaks down. Transactional relationships. And that is not the way that we've been designed to be. The worrying is, is that we swipe right on God. We have this transactional relationship with God. We say, you know what, there's more to life than this, I'm just gonna move on. So when things get challenging and difficult and, and we just swipe right, we move on. David, on the other hand, this whole word has said is not swipe right. It is not transactional. It is not FOMO. It is is the absolute opposite of everything that our hyper-individualistic society is focused on. It is totally countercultural. It is completely the kingdom of Jesus. Because what David is saying is, I am so dedicated to the promises that I made to Jonathan and Saul, who one of them tried to kill me continually. I am so dedicated to that, that I am completely committed to anyone that represents them. He is not transactional. And in that, friends, we get a glimpse of the love of Jesus. Because he has every right to swipe right on me. He has every right. But his love is a hasad love. It's a grace-filled love. It's a covenant love. It isn't a picky love. It doesn't look for things in my life that deserve love. He operates in a non-transactional way. God's love is always one-sided. And that's why it's such a beautiful complication to people who come to explore the life of Jesus. Because they are so, they they are smacked in the face, if you like, with this reality that what they find in Jesus, what you find in Jesus, is so opposite to what our culture celebrates. 
And the challenge is, is that which is celebrated and encouraged, and can I say educated to our children and grandchildren, that actually only results in distance and a lack of freedom. The very thing that they're seeking, they're actually being pushed away from. But Jesus comes with a one-sided love. Because look what David says. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. For the promise that I have set, I am going to show you unconditional, covenantal love. Even though you can give me nothing back, I'm not seeking something better. I'm seeking you. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Can you see how how, uh, Mephibosheth refers to himself? Can you see the, the paradigm that he has around himself? I'm a dead dog. David, you should be killing me. I shouldn't even be sat or stood or bowed down in front of you in this court. Who am I that you would even consider to have me in your presence? Can you imagine the overwhelming sense of fear that this young man had and reverence for his king? Because he would have been reminded his whole life, if David gets hold of you, you're a dead man. And then David calls You see, David would normally have killed the previous king's family. But he shows incredible grace in the midst of profound power. You see, last week I talked about how God is holy. And I meditated on that a lot this week as I've looked through this passage. And what I know to be true about God is that he is powerful and he is holy. That we have every uh, response here, that, he, that we have the same response as him. Who would you be that you would consider me? But it is only as we look at the holiness of God that we are profoundly affected by his love for us. That in fact, in some ways you could say that lifting up the holiness and the reverence of God lifts up grace and love in such equal measure. And it's only when we come to the place where you see that God is holy and He is powerful. And the the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is only when we come to that place that we can see that His love shines brighter. That He says, come. That He says, come. And not only that, He says, do not fear. I will show you love. I will restore you, and you can eat at my table always. Again, that is repeated three times in the same passage. You will eat at my table. You will eat at my table. You will eat at my table. Oh, I wish I could go into great depth on these three things. But first of all, love shows that God, that Jesus, that David accepts us. Not because of who we are, where we've come from, or what we do. Just because of the promise that he made right at the beginning in Genesis. He says, I will follow through. I will send my son Jesus. He will pay the price. So the promise of kindness is followed through because of your son, your father, Jonathan. Because of God's love, because of God's promise, he sends his son and he accepts us. Then he restores to us the riches, this idea of restoration where we are reconciled back to the way things should be at the beginning. With all of the promises that come with that. 
And then perhaps one of the most beautiful statements and wonderful metaphors that you can see all the way through the Bible that God says, come eat at my table. Now, we don't have any real reference point for the profound nature of this statement. But when the king comes and tells you that you can sit at the table and eat, not just now, but always, forever, always, now, and forever, he is communicating you're part of the family. You are my son. You come under my protection, remember the promise, and provision. Always. He told him three times. Friends, how many of us need this constant reminder that we are, that we are uh, accepted, that we are invited to the table of not just some King David, as wonderful he is in this part of his life, but the King himself, King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, come, glance, sit at my table. Not because of anything you are or anything you have done or anywhere that you've come from. I don't care that you were brought in a Christian family. I don't care what you did as a teenager. I don't care what you've said or what you've done. You are accepted. Notice there's a desperate cry for pardon. I'm your servant. Simon Fibbersheth is not coming into the presence of the King David with some haughty kind of, okay, this is me, I'm here. He's coming with his head bound in reverence to the king. And the king says, lift your head up. This is your place. You're going to sit there forever. That he might show unbelievable riches. That there is not going to be any scraping through for this young man ever again. Can I tell you that if you believe in Jesus, if you're an apprentice and a follower of Jesus this morning, there's no scraping through. That you are welcome at the table. Now, sometimes we stand up and we push the chair under, maybe not even, maybe we kick it over, and then we head our own way. Can I tell you, there is a place ready for you at the table of the king forever? For some of you, you've never received that invite. It's almost like you're Mephibosheth going, you know, great offer, David. I think I'll just go back to the land of barrenness and desperation. What? Why would you choose that? Why not come and sit and enjoy? Look at this beautiful piece of scripture that just echoes this sentiment in Ephesians. This is Paul. Remember Paul Chris killed Christians for a living. Just thought I'd throw that out there. You know, that, that was his job. That was his passion. Now God made it, uh, uh, met him somewhere in between the top of a horse and the dirt of the ground. Now he's sold out. Completely sold out. Passionate. For God, And this is what he says. Just remember, this is the words of a man who would have every right to feel guilty and ashamed because of what he did and who he was. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Remember that restoration? Remember, come eat at my table. Remember the love that has said every spiritual blessing in Christ. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That's a, that's a throwback to look. This is God who is holy. This is God who is powerful. This is God who is in heaven. This is the divine. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Oh, 
Brothers and sisters, friends, if there was ever a scripture that we should have firmly planted in our minds, it is that one. You have a place at the table, a place at the table of the king, and we become so satisfied with the place of the table at other places. Why choose the dark corner table at some dodgy, rat-infested restaurant? Why choose that when you can sit at the table of the king? Why go back to the land of desolation when you can sit at the table of the king? Because of his love shown to us. Without any regard to who we are, what we look like, where we're from, everything that you look at that is, that is favored and built up in our culture, God turns around and says, I look And none of those are qualifications for me. Your looks, your riches, your abilities, your education, your family situation, where you come from, your history. I don't care. I take you as you are because I love you. I heard a really good illustration this week uh, from Pastor Craig Groeschel. Luke sent me this sermon and it's not, um, he was talking about the love of God, and I was like, man, I, I'm just going to blatantly steal, with credit, that illustration. So I need to introduce you to somebody. Immediately, my mum gets all, she's out there. That's me. How cute was I? What happened? That's me. But I need to introduce you to somebody, not me. I want to introduce you to this little guy on the right-hand side. His name is Fred. Genius name, again, in Britain, not Frederick, Fred. That's Fred. Fred and I, I am told, become inseparable. And I'm not told, I know that Fred and I became inseparable. There's another picture of me with Fred. Yes, I was a uh, a thumb sucker. And if you look really carefully, it's kind of thin knees. Fred went everywhere with me. Fred was part of my life. Now, Fred, now, I'm almost 50, so Fred is at least 50 years old in this, in this picture. And, and you know what? I, I was passionate about Fred. I really, really loved Fred. And I got this ribbon around him. I can't believe I'm sharing this. And I, I, would, I would hold Fred to my nose. I would suck my thumb. And the, just the smell of Fred was calming to me. Now, before you judge me, some of you had blankies. How many of you had a blankie? Lots of showing your hands. Very Pentecostal this morning. Let me see your hands. I can't even see up there, so I'm just going to believe this whole balcony had blankie owning people. How many had a cuddly toy? Oh, you know what? Some of you just need to be released from the spirits of lying, because I know, <laughs> I know that more than one or two of you had a blankie or a cuddly toy. Um, okay, well, then apparently it's just that you and, you know, six of us in the room. Um, I love this thing. I love Fred. So, the problem is, this. This is Fred. And if you were to, um, no, so here's the thing. I showed Sarah, my wife, this again over the weekend. She visibly recoiled. Ooh. I said to her, we will never get rid of Fred. Fred is in my study at home. This is the original ribbon. And if you look really carefully, there are countless efforts of repairing Fred until my mum, and my mum is a seamstress. She pr- clearly just saying, you know what, forget it. 
I remember one time I had Fred, my mum and dad owned a Beetle, Volkswagen Beetle, and they didn't have headrests, and this is the time when you didn't tie kids up in the car. Do you remember that? You just bounced around on the back, and the springs in the VW Beetle were especially exciting for a young guy. I was maybe five years old, and I was playing. I remember I was hanging Fred over on the front seat of my car, and I remember my sister Faye, Faye if you're watching, sat down on top of Fred's head. I panicked and pulled him. His head came off. I still get upset about it. <laughs> Set free does wonders for your heart, can I tell you? But this, Fred, look at him. You, like, some of you, like, I know that when I do this to my wife, see, there's just this immediate, no, I don't want to touch it. Fred means the world to me. He brings nothing to the equation. He certainly has gotten, you're looking at him going, really, this guy needs help. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You look at Fred and you see it and you go, probably in the same way that Ziba looked at Mephibosheth. Why would you want this? There is nothing that this young man offers you. There is nothing that we offer Jesus. That other people might look at you in your life and they might literally see, like David, the stuffing knocked out of you. You might not be anything to look at. You might be the most beautiful person in the world, but when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see nothing worth looking at. That you know your history. You know the damage. You know the pain. You know the tears and the hurts and the scars that your life is covered in. You know what has been done to you, and you know what you have done. There is nothing on this planet where God, King Jesus, would look at you and go, you are worthy and yet the scripture reminds us that but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still the Fred, while we were still the one that no one else wants to be close to, that no amount of covering up of Fred's scars is going to make Fred new again. That no amount of money or, uh, or, or kind of cosmetic surgery or money spent on what's going on on the outside is going to cover up the fact that you are filled with scars on the inside. And yet what does God do? Exactly the same as what David did. He says this, where is he? Where is she? I want them. I want her. I want him. I want the one that everyone else has rejected that is crawling around the back end of desolation. I want them. Without any regard of what we look at, where we've come from, our family situation, our history, that God demonstrated his own love for the promise that he made right at the beginning of time, even before time, if you read Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, he said, I want him. I want her. Yeah, they're going to be broken. Yes, they're going to feel ugly. Yes, they're going to have a bad history. Yes, they're going to do things that they can't even want to think about. They're so ashamed of, I want them. Christ died for us. While we were still disobeying, Jesus Christ died for us. That's what that scripture means. While we were pushing our way from the table of the king saying, I'd rather be at that other table. He died for us. See, Jesus' love is not culturally relevant. It is not transactional. We don't bring anything to the table. And yet he said, I'll take you just as you are. 
Stop trying to clean yourself up to make it that Jesus will accept you. I love Fred just the way he is. And I'll never get rid of him. It's going to be left in my will. Kids, you're welcome. <laughs> and I will make sure that you do, because when if I go before you, which of course I will, then uh, I'll be watching. Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, I forgive you. Come to me. Pray to me. Allow your sins to be applied to me, and I will pay the price for you. Come and sit at my table. From barrenness, listen to this, from barrenness to honor, that God in all his holiness would say, yes. This is perhaps three of the most beautiful words I think you can find in the whole of the Bible. You can find them right at the beginning of the Bible when God came looking that day straight after Adam and Eve were hiding behind a tree. I said this in Tanzania when I was preaching. How thick were Adam and Eve? How daft were they? Hey, God's coming. Let's hide. Oh, yeah, that's going to work. Let's go behind this tree. He'll never see us. This is God. And what does he say? Read it. I love it. Where are you? And this message reverberates, echoes through every piece of scripture you can find in the Bible. That yes, I am holy. Yes, we are separate. Yes, there's a great divide. But where are you? Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whomsoever believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Where are you? Where is he? See, David was the one who took the initiative. God always makes the first move. Now, just listen up for a second for those of you who love your theology. It doesn't matter if you are a progressive Christian or a conservative Christian. It doesn't matter if you are Armenian or Calvinist and anything in between. We all agree on this, that it is God who initiates faith in you. It is God who seeks you out. You cannot find a scripture in the Bible that puts that in any doubt at all. It is God who initiates and starts off that even slightest thought about God. Where did that come from? It comes from the Spirit himself. Now, where there is disagreement is what happens after that starts. Some believe you can resist it. Some believe you can't. Not getting there. Doesn't matter right now. What matters is it's God who comes looking for you. And I don't know about you, but I don't look for things that are worthless. That there is some inherent worth within every one of us, placed in there by God himself. Broken, yes, that would cause God to come looking for us. He always makes the first advance. This is love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, if you forget about how loved you are, just remember that the God of universe would have every right to overlook you said, I want that one. Yeah, I know there's nothing to look at. Oh, gosh, I just love it. I love them. I want them. So, let's finish up by thinking about this. What does this mean for us? 
So we've looked at David and how we've said David looked for somebody to fulfill the promise upon. He said, I will love you, I will restore you, and they can eat at my table forever. We've seen that David at his very best is like King Jesus, that Jesus will come looking to pour unconditional love upon us. That even though we come fearful of who we are and what we've done in comparison to his love, he says, come, believe in me. See that I died for you. I paid the price for you. Come receive. Come sit at my table. But then there becomes a so what? That's all great. We could leave here going, that's really nice. I feel good about that. But there's actually, apart from the profoundly important promise that that means that forever you are one of his children, it starts bringing change into us. You see, Jesus didn't just come and preach the gospel and say, this is what you need to do in order to get to heaven. He said, this is what it means to be a Christian. Come follow me. Be an apprentice with me. Do as I do. Speak like I speak. React like I speak. And the reality is, is that we will never, ever be able to take part in anything other than a transactional relationship until Romans 5.5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. That until you've experienced true, unconditional love, you will never truly, unconditionally love anything or anyone else. That that actual event, that act, when we come to Jesus and he changes our life forever, enables us to be forgiving, enables us to love the unlovable, enables us to go and seek out our own Mephibosheths. It enables us, it empowers us. Why? Because we always reference ourselves to what has happened to us, therefore I can go and do the same. Otherwise, it is pure self-will. I'm going to have to go out and love this person. But when you look at another person who ordinarily you might be judgmental of and you find unloving and you don't even want to be close to, like Fred, they might look different, sound different. They might be of a different generation. You might be like, man, they just annoy me. But actually, because of the love that Jesus showed you, we or you and I can now go into the world and show others. Because if Jesus loved me that way, I'm called to love that way too. That's culture changing. Can I tell you that the, the, the Gen Alphas and the Gen Zs and, the, and, and the, uh, the Millennials and everybody in between is desperate to see an example of Jesus in their world because you and I are the closest that many people ever come to reading the Bible. So it changes our relationships. We stop seeing people as just a way of getting on. We're no longer looking for transactional relationships. There's fear of moving, a fear of, of, of uh, missing out. Because <laughs> why are you thinking you might miss out when you've already sitting at the table of the king? You have everything that you're ever going to be needing and anything that you've ever born for right there in Jesus. Our relationships solidify. We love because we are loved. We don't judge because we have not had judgment placed upon us. So, I wonder whether you can hear the call of the king this morning. Maybe it's really faint. Maybe before Zeba's men found Mephibosheth, still struggling. Maybe before they found him. Maybe he had heard word that they were coming. Maybe you can faintly hear God calling, where is he, where is she? And maybe that causes you to be fearful. You're fearing about what you might give up, fearing what it might mean, fearing that maybe you're going to lose your 
life. Maybe you're hearing that call. Maybe it started distant a long time ago, and it's just been getting louder and louder recently. Maybe you feel like you're living in a barren place, unworthy of the look of a king, that you've lost precious things in your life. You've been rejected. You, have been, you are fearful, and you're feeling alone. I want you to remember that the king has set his heart on you. Wow, if that doesn't make you leave this place this morning going, yes, the king has set his heart on you. Now, for some, maybe this is the first time you've realized that. Can I encourage you that we as a church want to talk to you? We want to pray with you. We've got response packs. We want you to go and dig into this and enjoy the truth and the promise of this. Don't sit at the corner table anymore. Come sit at the king's table. And for many of you, this is a beautiful reminder King Jesus has set his heart on you. Amen? Isn't that good? Now, I asked Sarah, what's the final song today? You guys can come up and I'm going to pray. This is a beautiful song. And I know that we can sing loud in this place. But now we have an added motivation. I want you to sing remembering. Just imagine when you stand up. Just bear with me for this. When you stand up and you've got that pew in front of you. Imagine you were standing at the table of the king. How would you sing if the king was sat right at the end over there? Oh, I'm at the king's table. I'm at the king's table. Look, I'm not there anymore. I'm here. I think, like me, you'd be singing so loud and so like, yes. I figured that's the way we should finish off today. I don't think we'd stand at the table and quietly sing. We'd be like, this is awesome. Amen? Okay, so I've got high expectations. No, it's, I, actually I do, but I say that very lovingly. Let's stand as children of the King. Let's sing to King Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're so grateful for your word. What a beautiful passage. So grateful, Lord Jesus, for the way that you seek us out. And Lord, I pray that we would come paying homage, that we would come with joy in our hearts, that we would come this morning having been reminded of where you have placed us as children, that Jesus, you showed us unconditional love when we were not worthy. In all your power, in all your holiness, in all that makes you who you are, you said, I want him. I want her. So Lord, I pray that these words, your words, would just reverberate in our hearts this week. And Lord, I pray that as we sing, that we would sing prayerfully and powerfully and triumphantly because Jesus of what you did on the cross for us. For those, Lord, who have not come to that place where they have come as your servant and prayed for the first time or sought you out for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would work on their hearts as well. Draw them to yourself, King Jesus. Amen.